Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Sarah DeVello. Sarah is a true crime writer and the author of Broadway Butterfly, a thriller named an Entertainment Weekly Best Book of Summer and an AARP Hot Summer Read. She's also the creator and host of Mystery and Thriller Mavens, a popular author series and interactive face group. For her weekly Mystery and Maven Thriller Mavens live events, she has interviewed more than 300 authors, ranging from the best-selling and world-renowned Dean Coots, Patricia Cornwell, Lee Child, Jeff Deaver, Tamron Hall, Karen Slaughter, Ruth Ware, Lisa Unger, and many more uh, to to the the buzziest debuts. While creative and active on her social media platforms, Develo also serves as the Director of Social Media Strategy for the International Thriller Writers Association. Her articles have been published in Marie Claire, Elle, Red Book, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Day, among others. In her spare time, she likes to teach yoga, cook, and eat, garden, and go for <laughs> leisurely walks with her husband and their beloved rescue mutt, Paluda. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Danielle. I am so excited to be here. And um, I noticed a name missing from that star-studded list of authors that I've interviewed, which is um, Danielle Gerard. Well, thank you. I was That was super fun. I know it's fun to be switching um, shows. And now it's my turn to get the dirt on you. So, um, I mean, the dirt on the book, shall we say. <laughs> and there's a lot of good dirt in this book. Um, so before we get too d- deep into all my questions, can you tell our listeners about Broadway Butterfly? Yes. So Broadway Butterfly is the true story of a scandalous flapper named Dot King who's found murdered in her bed in 1923 wearing a scandalous lacy negligee that barely reached her knees. Um, and the investigation... Uh, reveals a crazy array of characters, real life people that run the gamut from the underbelly of Broadway all the way up to the White House. You cannot make this stuff up, which is why it is a true story. And I am so excited to share it with you today. Oh, it was so fun to read. And um, I mean, literally, I, I so I want to ask about the first, let's talk about research because clearly, Holy cow. I mean, there are, as you said, there's a dozen characters in this book that are very, you know, big personalities that have a lot to do with what happened to Dot uh, or, you know, you think happened to Dot. So how did you go about researching it? So Danielle, the research for this book took took me nine years, the better part of a decade of my life. (laughs) I can't quite believe it. I naively thought it would take me only one year, hashtag poor jerk, Um, nine years later, you know, here I am. But it took me to some truly far flung and fascinating places. So I interviewed as subject matter experts that from professors to police detectives, from um, presidential libraries to hiring a psychic that works with law enforcement on cold cases. There is no avenue that I left unexplored. And, um, you know, from the from the bowels of the New York Public Library to the presidential museums to the rare books 
collections at the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, the J.P. Wow. Morgan Library Museum in New York. It was some really fascinating places, you know, places where you have to put your stuff in a locker and scrub your hands in so that the oils from your fingers don't get on the antique paper. Yep. I, mean, I, I could never have anticipated any of this. Right. So the, the whole idea came to you and you, you mentioned it in the acknowledgments, which I love. So tell our listeners sort of you were in the middle of a different book when this happened. So tell us that story. Yeah, so I was 50,000 words into a first draft, you know, a crappy first draft <laughs> of an that's entire, how they are, right? That's how they are, of an entirely a different book. And I went home for Thanksgiving to be with my family in Philadelphia. And, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, you're sitting around, you're eating your leftover turkey sandwich, unless you're out hitting the Black Friday sales, which my family was not. <laughs> and we were sitting around and, and, and conversation turned to reminiscing. So my aunts and my uncles and my cousins were, you know, family stories start getting told. And my uncle Ed started reminiscing that back in the 60s after high school, he and my uncle David, after school let out, used to sneak over to the old castle and they'd sneak cigarettes and drink beers, you know, as you do right. in the 60s. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> as young people are known to do, right. As they are wont to do. And so he was, you know, talking about this and we were all having a good laugh. And then I said, wait a minute, what castle? Because my aunt lives in a very normal suburban development where every single house is a split level ranch, three steps up, three steps down, yeah. you know, circa 1950. And right. I'm literally looking around, you know, I'm sorry, what castle? It just was so right. bizarre. Right. And so he said, well, they're in the next, you know, down the road quarter of a mile or whatever it was. And then, you know, another identical suburban, you know, development, there used to be a, a grand estate from the 1920s and the ruins of this estate still are standing today, even though it was demolished in the 1980s it was raised to the ground and so as a history lover who minored in european history and then what i love about history is architecture needless yeah. to say i was intrigued i had to know more so all 11 of us pile into cars we caravan over and there in between you know the subarus and the tulip beds right. are the remnants, the ruins of an actual castle. So, you know, 50 foot tall pillars stretching up toward the sky that used to be the entrance, headless statues of Diana and Zeus, you wow. know, the, the right. edges of a, of a, of a, you know, a, a, a little pool where a fountain once gurgled and, you know, a fish would spout, a fish statue would spout water. I mean, it just was so crazy, but then there's someone's house and their car and, you know, their kids try, you know, trike, Tri tricycle or whatever, you know, and it was right. it was so mind boggling and cognitively dissonant to have right. somebody's house and then a statue in their right. in their backyard next to the bird feeder. I had to know more, so I dove down the research hole, the rabbit hole. I learned everything there was to know about this home, this family. 147 rooms, you know, 70 full-time gardeners just to maintain the grounds, three floors oh above ground, God. three floors below, 24 fireplaces, 27 bathrooms, a movie theater, their own radio station in the house, a gymnasium, a ballroom. I mean, it was just, it was so, uh, this level of wealth was unimaginable. And right. so after, you know, I learned everything, I'm sorry, it was 28 28 bathrooms, not 27. I don't want to shortchange a bathroom. We need all the <laughs> toilets we can get. That's so funny. 
Um, so I learned everything there was to learn yeah. about the, uh, this, but I thought, you know, that's fascinating, but I'm not, I personally am not going to write the history of this great estate as fascinating right. as it is. Right. So I left it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it because my spidey sense said there was a story here. There was something more here to be yeah. unearthed yeah. and discovered and revealed. So uh, about, I guess about two, three months later, I went back to it. And I just kept, you know, Googling and researching and whatever. And then I found, I believe, I have to double check the pub date, but I believe it was a 1953 book. And I can't remember the exact title, but it was something like Scandalous Philadelphia, the 100 most scandalous things to ever rock the Quaker city. Yeah. And there in the, it was one paragraph, one line that said, oh, you know, the great, um, you know, this great, this great estate found itself, uh, at, you know, connected to a murder in 1923. And immediately all the hairs in the back of my neck stood up and I said, that's my story. And I just knew it. That is amazing. I mean, and it is so, so I'm assuming like the Julia is a real person. Julia Hartman and all of these characters are real, real people. So Julia Hartman is a pioneering woman of journalism, one of the six pioneering women of journalism at the turn of the last century. And she has been almost completely forgotten by history. This is a woman whose work should be taught in classrooms mm -hmm. in when we speak of journalism and when we speak of women in journalism and when we speak of of crime reporting this is a person who should be right right up there right and she has right. been completely forgotten so it was right. a real pleasure to unearth her story and bring her to the forefront and i hope that part of what happens when this book comes out is that is that people will become aware of the extraordinary person that she was yeah and she was involved in this case i guess i wonder like what you know because of course in in you know true crime you have to take license right i mean you you're, you're not there's not transcripts of what these people said or what they thought or any of that. There's no, there's no journal to go by that. You're just like, you know, reciting. So how, you know, how did you, how do you do that? Because I, of course, everything I write is a hundred percent made up from my brain. So I don't have to thank God. I don't have to like follow any, any real stuff that I would mess up, but I'm curious to know how you, so, you know, how did you sort of figure out that Julia, for instance, was going to be the main point of view, which was so fascinating. As you said, she's an incredible woman and I, and a wonderful character and she puts herself in in some you know sketchy positions to get some answers so tell us about sort of you know how do you do that so i got as much as i possibly could from court transcripts mm -hmm. from me memoirs by people who were involved in the case and from newspaper articles because of course she was a, a newspaper reporter right, from right. her newspaper articles that she personally typed you know out on a, right. uh, out on her little typewriter and also on because this was national news because of who was involved in the scandalous you know uh salacious nature of the of the subject yeah. matter yeah. it quickly caught fire and became national news so i also you know, found all of those newspaper articles. So I amassed over 1700 pieces of research, some virtually and some in person. So when I started researching this case in 2014, the New York Daily News, which was Julia's newspaper, um, their archives were not digitized. So I had to go to the Milstein microfilm room in the New York Public Library and pull out a drawer full of rolls of microfilm, feed it into the little machine and you know, scroll through page by page by page. Looking, looking for, for articles. What you, oh my 
gosh. Looking for articles. No wonder it took forever. <laughs> I mean, right? Exactly. No, exactly. Because you cannot search. There's no search terms in microfilm. You have to use your good old fashioned eyes to look for headlines or bylines. And most reporters back then didn't have bylines. Um, 90, I would say 95% of reporters didn't have the, the honor, the esteem of a byline. You just wrote anonymously and you were grateful to have a job. But yeah. two weeks before this case, Julia was awarded her own byline, which is a huge honor. Only the best reporters got. And she earned that. She earned that. And so some of many of her articles are bylined, although some are not. And when after her life is threatened and she's in real physical danger, she starts to write anonymously because she has to protect herself. Just to stay alive. Right. And so you were able to sort of just like intuit which of the articles would have been hers based on the writing based on the subject matter knowing that she was at the center of this case so some of them were bylines so then i have that proof but then also because i had read all of her articles and then i also transcribed them myself so i i dictated them into a microphone and so i learned the rhythm of her speech her sentence structure how she liked to work how she liked to write her word choices um, I learned her, 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 her secrets or, you know, special sauce. We right. all can sort of tell who has, you know, you know, who has written a book. You're like, oh, that feels like a, you know, that feels like a Stephen King. He has a certain rhythm, a certain right. pattern. Right. Um, you know, you th- you think to yourself, oh, that's not a, you know, that's not a, um, you know, a more lyrical writer or whatever. Right. So right. She, um, I learned her rhythms and her, her preferences. And so I got to the point where I could actually not even look at the byline and know which ones were hers. That's cool. Um, it was, it was really cool. But then, but I did, I was fortunate enough to get some of them that were bylined. Yeah. So you could kind of check on that. So, well, yes. that, so as you were, you know, as you're, I mean, you had nine, I guess, as you're, as you're sort of, you know, collecting this, this, information and doing this research is, is sort of when the characters come to life for you, right? Yes. And the, when did you sort of, of the nine years of research, at what point did you sort of say, okay, I'm going to start sort of piecing this together as a book? Or did you do all the research, I mean, first and then, I mean, sort of how does that work? Because it seems, it's such a, like I said, it's a very, like, it's a huge commitment of time. It's huge commitment. So I researched for about um, nine months, just exclusively researching. I didn't even uh, to my own detriment, didn't take notes, which I bitterly regret and which yeah. I never not do again. Right. And then um, I just was like, this is so fascinating. How could I ever forget it? <laughs> like, well, uh, 17, right. right. 1700 pieces of other fascinating, you know, inf- articles later, it's like, oh, wait, where did I read that? Right. Uh, so live and learn. Um, but so um, I researched exclusively and then about nine months and I felt like I had started to get my arms around the case. And so I started to write mm-hmm. and I had thought I'm, you know, I'm not a plotter. Usually I'm a, I'm an organic writer or what they call a pantser. So I just, I thought to myself, um, because I, this is a true story. And because I have the actual historical chronology of what actually happened, that should be enough. Mm-hmm. Um, poor naive jerk. It was not, <laughs> it was not Danielle. So yeah. I had to, 
Um, that actually took a lot, a lot more time too. So I had to go back and sort of try to organize it better. Then as I was writing, I kept discovering more need for research where, oh, wait, what would have happened, you know, here in order to make that happen later? You know, why would right. the person have been looking at this particular person and not right. this other person? Why, you know, and so then I would start to research that person and, okay, well, who was involved in that? And then, you know, right. and then that would require another week or month of research or whatever. So, and then I started researching and writing in tandem first to fill right. in those holes and then also to enrich it. Now, as I was discovering these characters, as, as I was unearthing them, like a, you know, an archeologist with a tiny, <laughs> a tiny right. little brush. Right. Um, I found out. So for, the first person that I discovered was Dot, Dot King, the murder victim. Right, right. And then I realized very quickly that the lead reporter who was covering this case was a woman and so i was like okay that is yeah that is you're fantastic. like I, yes i'm doing that i'm totally doing that right i am doing that and then i realized that the the source that was most valuable to the police was dot's closest friend confidant the keeper keeper of all her secrets the woman who discovers her murder discovers the right. body right Emma bradford and i right. thought well, she's fabulous and fascinating and a fearless pioneer of a woman who right you know, left everything and everyone that she knew in her native jacksonville florida and got on a train by herself at the age of you know 21 years old and went you know a thousand miles north to right. new york city and right. made it in search of a better life for herself and you know ella bradford was black and at this right. time Jacksonville was segregated. So Ella Bradford sat in a quote unquote colored waiting room, yeah. segregated from the white people to quote get on a quote unquote colored train car yeah. to again segregated from white people to go north to New York City, which at the time was not segregated. And what must that have been like for her? Right. Um, and not to mention that even though New York City wasn't segregated, there was still rampant racism. So that's yes. a real I mean, they were, you know, she also had felt some danger, some personal danger, and she had a little boy. So there was a lot, you know, the, the stakes of the story really rose very naturally. And then there's all these really shady characters, you know, yes. um, and then the, the detective who really wanted to do a good job, which I really appreciated, right? But again, the politics of um, all of that, and, you know, and then the timing right before, you know, as it ends you know as it happens to hit into the great depression and that's his own sort of right i mean it is all of that just feeds all of it really really beautifully i mean exactly exactly to everything you said so eloquently and so insightfully i mean you totally get it exactly yeah. all of that and and i think you know ella bradford was in a very dangerous position because yeah. you know as she's already in a vulnerable position because she is young she is black and yeah. she has information that some very powerful people do not want to get out. Right. But that information is what is going to catch Dot King's killer. Right. And Ella Bradford was not just, you know, didn't just work for her. She was not just an employee. She was her, Dot King's closest friend, her, right. her, her only confidant. And she very much cared about dot and right. she wants her killer caught and brought to justice but in order right. to do that she has to reveal the very sensitive information that endangers her own life and she is yeah. a six-month-old baby so it's yeah. that is a tough position for her to be in 
Very. And it, I mean, it's, it's just amazing that the stakes, I mean, that you can, the stakes created by this true situation are so natural and so escalating. I, you know, I love the way that worked. So this is your debut mystery, um, yes, which is so exciting. Congratulations. Tell us about that journey. I know you've written books before. It sounds like you were 50,000 words into another book. So once you completed this book, was that, you know, tell us how, did you get an agent? How long did that take? Did you do revisions? I think we have a lot of listeners who are aspiring authors. So we want to hear about sort of what the process was for you. I know it's so exciting. Yay. And, I, and thank you for bringing that up because I think it's so important to talk about because I think so often um, we aren't transparent enough with that. And it just right. is like, ta-da, I have produced a book. And then right. it's like, that has just hatched from an egg. And it's right. like, no, no, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about what it took to get this, this egg to hatch. Yes. Um, so yes. So, okay. So first of all, I self-published my first book, which was a career memoir in 2013. It took me five years to write, edit and publish that. And I chose to self-publish that. Um, because for all of the wonderful reasons that they're wonderful and legitimate reasons that there are to self-publish, like yeah. creative control, yeah. um, which was very important to me, like speed to market, as you well know, and many of your listeners may know, it usually takes a couple years to get a book to market in terms of it takes a long time to try to get an agent and the odds are stock stacked against you. That's after you finish the book and right. it takes a couple years and the odds are stacked against you then you have to go out on submission to the publishers and the odds are stacked against you and it takes a couple of years then you finally sell the freaking book and then it's time to get in their queue and then it's another two years usually until that book hits the shelves yeah and so because i had a an, a an idea for a book that had never been done before which was a yoga memoir about um finding your path and 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 stepping away from what is familiar convenient easy lucrative expected into that right. which fulfills you told through the lens of working in the male-dominated world of financial services to teaching yoga which is very very female dominated but equally cutthroat surprisingly that yeah. had never been done before, but I knew it's only a matter of time until someone else had the same idea. So I wanted to get to market fast and yeah. knowing that it had already taken me five years to write it. I didn't want to spend another two or three trying to get an agent, get depressed. I'm like, I got to get this thing out on the shelves before someone else thinks of it. Right. So I, and I had a very strong vision for, you know, I want, I knew the cover I wanted. I knew the, the content that I wanted. So I self-published that myself. And I had a great experience and I very much considered self-publishing this one as well. Yeah. Um, but as I was working on it and thinking, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it, I also, you know, there was also obviously the pandemic. And in the spring of 2020, as all of my events were canceled and all of everyone's events were canceled, I decided right. to found an Authors Helping Authors Volunteer Initiative where I would interview my fellow authors to help them connect with readers and get the word out of their about their books in the wake of canceled in-person events. So I launched, you know, I started doing my mystery and thriller mavens interviews. Now, as I was doing that, I interviewed an author. I inter well, I've interviewed, I think I've interviewed about 400 authors three years later, but in the course of this series, um, I interviewed an author and afterward her agent contacted me and said, Hey, I, you're a great interviewer. Can I pitch you my other authors? And I said, sure. I, I, you know, I'm happy to hear your pitches. So we set up a time to talk and she pitched me all her authors. Some I took, some I didn't. 
And in the course of that conversation, she said, you know, who the heck are you? Are you a journalist? Are you, you know, what, who are right, you? Right, <laughs> and I right. said, I said, um, you know, cause she only knew me through my series. I said, well, I'm first and foremost, consider myself a writer. She said, what do you write? I told her, I said, well, I'm working on a book. And I told her, she said, that sounds great. I'd be very interested in, in hearing more about that or, you know, seeing your pitch when you're ready to go out on submission. I said, great, thanks. You know, I'll let you know. So then um, she had said, oh, let's, you know, let's have lunch. And thanks for interviewing, you know, the author that, you know, that, that I had interviewed. So we went out to lunch and we just really hit it off. Right. You know, she's a sassy Greek lady. I'm a sassy Italian lady. <laughs> <laughs> right. She sees the value in self-publishing. She has helped some of her other um, authors self-publish. And I really liked that. I, I think there's no right way to do things. And I think that so often people in the publishing industry are like, this is the way the one and only right. it's like mm, no and right. she was really open we were like-minded in the fact that we prefer to see it as a broader conversation and there are value in many different paths so right. i i sort of thought to myself you know this lady and i are aligned like we get she gets it and so she um you know she texted me the next day and she said you know so we left the we left the lunch and she said you know maybe i'd be interested in seeing your pages if you were possibly interested in in sending right. this to me and i said well you know and i'm hedging too like well maybe i'd be interested in right. possibly exploring that you know we're both you know two boxers circling each of other of course of course neither of us wanting to commit and then she texted me the next day she said listen i think we i think we'll be friends meanwhile i'm like you're still on audition i'm still having like you know right. I, I may I, I you're still auditioning to be my friend here <laughs> um but she said you know listen before we take this any further maybe we don't even want to you know i think we'll be friends but maybe it's not a love match professionally let's even see if we're a match let me even right. see if i'm interested in your work and you see if you're interested in my thoughts maybe we're not yeah. aligned right and i thought that makes sense and i said well, i'm not ready to go out on submission because i already had a list of other agents that i was considering querying right um, right i had had i had you know i had been speaking and teaching nationally on using social media social media for shy authors i've been doing that for 12 years and yeah you know, at another writers conference a couple of agents has come up to me and said hey this you seem you know really cool here's our cards contact us when your book is at you know when you're ready to go out on submission so i was like you know i already have some interest like right but then i thought you know what why not let's just see how it goes and so i thought i'll start to test the market so she, i sent her my first four chapters and she said you know my son's home from you know spring break for college um you know i'll get back to you in four to you know a couple weeks and i said great yeah. I'll talk to you then. yeah and i think it was eight hours later she texted me and said oh my god i can't stop reading this is you know fantastic i want to offer you representation and it was I, yeah. It was not what I was expecting. This is not how I don't have to tell you or any of your listeners. This is not how it usually works. No, no. Um, so of course I was suspicious. I was like, it's too easy. She, you know, <laughs> she likes me too much. You know, uh, this is this is happening too easily. Something must be wrong with it. But then I realized, no, like sometimes it does just happen. This yeah, way. it's a connection. She connected to the book. Awesome. Exactly. And I wanted to do something again, I think outside the box, I'm interested in doing things differently. So I wanted to do a genre mashup. I wanted to take what I love about, you know, true crime. I'm a true crime junkie. I like, I listen to the podcast. I watch the documentaries, you know, then I watch the other documentary. Like I, I consume, you know, true crime because I love, I am team Twain. I think Mark Twain got it right. That truth is stranger than fiction. And I love yeah. that. I like to lean into that. But I think it often is 
a little bit of a slower read. It's a denser read and you hear right. the voice of the narrator and it's often a journalistic kind of voice. Right. So I thought to myself, what if I take the cool factor of truth is stranger than fiction, but I take the readability of fiction because yeah. fiction is a faster read and I do a genre mashup. I take the yeah. best of two worlds. Like creative nonfiction basically is what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I said to, you know, so Liza Fleissig, my agent, I, she yeah. said, as soon as I read it, she said, I said to myself, oh my God, this is effing brilliant. Why doesn't everyone do this? But she said, she warned me. She said, not everyone's going to agree with me. She said, some, we might go out on submission and, and some people might say to us, what are you guys smoking? <laughs> like, we, huh. we, we don't do it like this for a reason. We do there, you know, there's true crime and there's fiction and never the two shall, you know, intersect. So, but she said, I'm willing to take a chance on this if you are. And that really resonated because I said, I am willing to right. take a chance and I want right. someone who's willing to take a chance on me and right. sees the nucleus and the value of the story that I hope to provide. And that's how I knew she was the one for me. That's amazing. So she was with you sort of as you were writing the book. I mean, you know, you had, or at least in the sort of later stages of writing the book. And then, yeah, I mean, it was done by then. It was, I was just, I was just polishing, polishing, polishing because I'm an OCD anxiety riddle mm -hmm. perfectionist who would mm -hmm. honestly still be publishing if like polishing if Liza hadn't pried it out of my cold dead fingers um because I could just really like never stop doing that <laughs> right well it's hard to let go right it's hard to let go yes. and be like it's good enough and somebody else is going to also edit it and um yeah. so did you always know that you were going to write true crime I mean you when you started to sort of like the, the, the book that you were writing that you were sort of 50,000 words into, was that also true crime? Danielle, it was women's fiction. Okay. It was so far different because I think what really fascinates me is women at work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my, my, mem my memoir, my self-published book, Where in the Om Am I, really focuses on women at work. And yeah not just women, people at work, but it's right, about, right. you know, what is fulfilling to you? What is your life's work? What do you want to invest and spend your time right, doing? So that at right. the end of your life, you can say, this is what I've done. Here's my body of work. Right. You know, this is what I have de dedicated my life to. Right. And that is very fascinating to me, the idea of one's life's work. Yeah. And so additionally, I think it's extra complicated for women because the people who do choose to parent, the burden of parenting almost always falls on the mother, on the female mm -hmm. partner. And that often has, makes w women at work's life harder. Yeah. And so I was exploring that yeah. in, it, through the lens of, you know, of, of two female friends at work, one of whom chooses to, to be a parent, one of whom chooses not to, and, and how that impacts their friendship and their lives and their choices and their careers and all this stuff. So I was 50,000 words into that story. I yeah. had never thought that I would write a true crime because frankly, I didn't feel worthy. I oh. loved mysteries. I yeah. was a Nancy Drew girl. My yeah. grandmother was reading Nancy Drew to us before we could read. And then she was reading P.D. James to us before, frankly, she should have, should be reading P.D. James <laughs> to kids. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but we loved it. We didn't care that it was violent. And um, and I, it has always been my favorite genre, but I didn't think that I could be one of the people who wrote it. I didn't feel interesting. worthy. Interesting. That's so interesting that you felt like, I mean, because what, you know, because you weren't, you didn't have police background because you weren't a detective. Is that what you sort of? How do you write something that you know nothing about kind of thing? But look at you, you wrote, you wrote an incredible book about something you knew nothing about and you wrote it about real things. 
I think so clearly was, you're worthy. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I think it was, yeah. You know, I thought I don't have any experience. I don't have any training. And I think when you love something so much and you admire something yeah. so much, yeah. it's like going to a museum and you look at a beautiful, you look at a beautiful Renoir or a Monet and yeah. you admire it, but you don't think to yourself, well, I could do that. Oh, of course. Right. Right. right? None of that's so I totally think true. I, I looked at that. I looked at mysteries like that, you know, like, oh, I love you and I admire you and I, I love everything about you, but little old me could never do that. You know, right. I didn't think that I could be, I didn't think I could. And here you are. So one of my favorite things to do with books is to find sort of a, a, a little pivotal scene or something that really grabs my attention and speaks to me. And to this one, I have to say, I love so much. And it's about sort of this very wealthy um, woman uh, Francis and her stepmom Eva, and they're talking about um, something that her, you know, sh her husband is. She feels wronged, and she says uh, to her stepmother, Francis does. But how can I ever forgive him? And her stepmom says, "Oh, my darling girl, women are the moral compass of society. We exert our good influences on marriage, our children, the circles in which we move, and the communities in which we exist." Without us, the moral structure of society would disintegrate. And with that, society itself. So we forgive, even when our hearts are broken. We hold our heads up and march on when we feel as though we might die because we're women and we're wives. It's the bravest and the best thing we can do. And our worlds and the world at large are far better for it. Which is still so true, right? This is still the reality of women. This is still the reality of women and the sacrifices that women make at their own expense to compensate for the mistakes that men have made that exert a cost on the lives of everyone around them and, and the innocent bystanders who are watching a swath be cut through the middle of their life, watch their life you know, crack and fall apart and yet they are the ones that have to make this okay for everyone else through their own personal sacrifice and the injustice of that and the unfairness of that and the deep wrongness of that and yet the fact that it keeps happening over and over and over even now 100 years later is something that i really wanted to explore yeah it's so true and the rage that that you know that that emits or evokes in all of us right that that is just oh Gesundheit. That um that is absolutely right. Well, that was I did really just love that, and it's it's you know that is not a central part of the of you know the story, but she is such a true character and a true woman of that time in a really you know unfortunate spot that is happens still today. So exactly, and I really wanted to explore the theme of justice and fairness in yeah. all of its many. Um, you know, many fields that it plays out on. And that is in the criminal field, right? A murder. Yeah. And that is in the field of marriage where all of us, you know, it's like, oh, I'm giving a little more than I'm getting. <laughs> or, oh, right. I'm having to make a sacrifice that I really technically shouldn't have to be making in order to make this relationship stay whole or make this world that we have created of this family stay stay whole and that is unfair and so you know or the sacrifices that people have to make at work you know for you know detective coughlin the sacrifices that he has to make in right. order to stay in his position as the head of the head of the detectives unit in the nypd that's not fair and mm -hmm. so fairness and 
injustice and unfairness was something I wanted to explore in all of the many ways that it plays out, you know, and Ella had to face a lot of things that were unfair. So what is fair? What is just? That's something I really wanted to look at. No, it's really, it's exactly right. And that was a really, I love that. Plus I do, since it's killer women, I always love to sort of highlight um, a, a unique women perspective. So it's so beautifully done. So this book is out on August 1st. Yes, ma'am. August 1st. So you are listening to this podcast on August 3rd, which means it is out in the world right now and you need to go and grab your copy. Before I let you go, Sarah, can you tell us what you're working on now? So I am taking some time to replenish my creative energy. Yes. Um, and to sort of get my legs under me, get my feet under me before I plunge into the next um, project. And I think, you know, there's so much pressure to just constantly be producing and constantly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the pressure on writers is to produce a book a year. And I just yeah. think that pace is inhumane almost yeah um yeah. and i think that you know humans are the only living thing that do not hibernate <laughs> that right. do not have a rest season and mm -hmm. we wonder why we're so exhausted all the time and exactly. why we have nothing left in the tank and so yep. in this world of fast fashion fast food faster internet fast 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 go 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 right as much as I feel that pressure bearing down on me, I am trying to step back from it and say, Good you know you. what, I actually am going to hibernate and I'm going yeah. to rest because every living thing needs to rest and Good every living thing needs to hibernate. So I'm going to take that pause and hope that I come back replenished. You um, will. And, and in the meantime, that. this is, I mean, really like it's a, this is a long feat, right? I mean, there's a lot that goes into writing this kind of book. And you need to be ready, you know, when you're going to do it again, it's going to be another, <laughs> right? It's not just like a ski down the hill. It's a, you know, it's a big climb. So it's climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to get to the top and yeah. then realize there's another Kilimanjaro of then marketing it, of first yeah. editing it. Yeah. Then another Kilimanjaro on top of that to then market it. And then right. another Kilimanjaro on top of that to write the next one. And it's like, but, but wait, when do I get to go back to base camp and take a nap? <laughs> yes. I love that. Well, I'll, I'm going to meet you at base camp because I think that sounds like a fabulous idea. So okay. I'm so grateful for you to joining us today. And this week is beautiful. Also, I love, because I always sneak a peek under the covers of things. I love that they cut, that they covered it with that beautiful, very 20s art deco that also shows up behind her in the cover so that is and i think thomas and mercer does a beautiful job with their hardcover book so it's gorgeous it's gorgeous and i love it it's such a such a such a great book so congratulations celebrate lots of champagne and um i will look forward to seeing you and raising the glass to you in person I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on Danielle. Thank you for your reading it and understanding it and resonating it for your excellent questions and for, you know, getting this information out that most people aren't talking about out to, to, you know, bringing it to light about the path to publication and the real path to, to, to getting that book on the shelf. I really appreciate that. This is so wonderful. Oh, I'm so, I, I'm so happy to do it. It's totally my passion project. I love talking to other authors too, because it reminds us that we're all in this together and it's brutal. Yes. <laughs> if we didn't have each yes. other, what would we do? So, exactly exactly so congratulations again and really do celebrate it um it's always such an exciting thing to hold your own book in your hands 
And um, for everybody listening, this has been Killer Women with Sarah Devello and her Broadway, uh, her Broadway, her debut mystery, Broadway Butterfly, which is so, so fun. And I, I absolute must read. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.